Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, joining you once again on this wonderful Thursday in which we release our podcasts. Today's podcast, I'm bringing back somebody who did one of the first sets of podcasts when we first launched uh, the podcast back in 2023. This person is a friend of Lace and they are also somebody that helped to contribute towards the white paper that we launched just before we went live with the pod itself, the HR on the Offensive white paper. It's Jig Ramjeev. Jig, how are you doing, sir? You all right? I'm very well, Chris. Thank you for having me back after, well, I, it's, after what feels like a while, actually. Yeah, it's been too long. It's been too long. And uh, listen, a lovely listener, just to just to let you know, so Jig and I had spoken uh, a number of times about getting him back on the podcast, and I've been very tardy. But this time we finally <laughs> found some time, and uh, we wanted to talk about something which is a passion, I guess, um, from your perspective, Jig, because there's a few bits that we, swim, like, if we let people in behind the curtain here. Uh, we do a bit of pre-read for each of these podcasts and I had a little sit down with Jig and said this might be something that's of interest and he said yeah absolutely let's go into it so we're gonna we're gonna explore some stuff around DNI and I also wanted to get yourself um, I'll get you to give our listeners a bit of background on your your background as well but I also wanted to get somebody who was a talent specialist in as well because you now the challenges that that we've seen in the post-COVID era around uh, DNI, uh, managing, attracting uh, talent, and ensuring that you're doing it in the right way is certainly something that our listeners uh, have picked up. And we've run a few podcasts around things like tokenism and stuff like that. But I just wanted to get your thoughts as, a, as somebody with that talent background. But rather than me waffle on for the next five minutes and turning this into a monologue, which is already going that way, uh, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on yourself? Yeah. Uh, your career, and then also why you wanted to have a chat today about around some of these DEI topics that we're going to delve into. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Happy to do that. So many, 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 many years ago, I uh, I started off life as, I guess, as a recruiter, um, certainly in the exec space, predominantly the public sector and, and local government. And that was my kind of first foray into really seeing how um, organizations really think about how they appoint senior leaders into an organization, very much uh, in the north of England, but that was local and regional government. And then very fortunate to work for a great uh, IT services company called Fujitsu Services, got to do lots of different roles, many of them in HR, really got my grounding, if you like, in, in HR roles there and um, in, a, in a very very progressive HR function. Um, I only obviously discovered that it was an incredibly progressive HR function after many, many years, because then you get to see what other organizations do. Um, yeah. Then I went to into the consulting side, and uh, that's where I met many of what I would describe as friends of LACE, working for Deloitte as a human capital consultant, did lots of work around HR transformation, change, organization design, et cetera. Um, worked in Europe, but also worked for clients out in the US, but and, and then also moved over to Australia and worked out in Australia for Deloitte as well. So very privileged to have had that opportunity with uh, with the firm. Um, and then uh, worked for an investment bank called Macquarie for a short stint before uh, I got to move over to Asia, uh, to Singapore and Hong Kong, working for a fabulous organization called Bloomberg. Uh, spent many, many years there working as uh, regional head of HR out there. But then also did a global HRD role. And then my first foray as a, a global head of talent for Bloomberg, which then led to a very privileged position as the chief talent officer for the London Stock Exchange Group, which was uh, which has been my uh, most latest role. 
And again, very, very privileged to work for a great organization looking after their talent strategy. So I've kind of, I'm a, I'm a talent guy now, I guess, but my background yeah. is much more varied and, and, and diverse than perhaps many, which I think has helped me become a, a stronger talent professional. Yeah, certainly. So let's delve into some of the things that you've seen, because as I said, right at the top of the show, we talked about when you and I were having a chat about what do we want to talk about? Um, And you had some interesting thoughts around what you've seen, particularly in the post-COVID era with regards to uh, diversity, equity and inclusion and teams uh, in particular. So can you just maybe frame that a little bit, that conversation for us? And then we'll get into some specifics around things like tokenism, tick box exercises and things like that. Well, maybe before I even do that, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think many people who I've spoken to, and myself included, I think, if you'd spoken to them perhaps at the early part of their career, it's, it's something that many others don't necessarily take either a great interest in or don't want to be seen as advocates for the whole diversity and inclusion space. Now, my personal journey, I can only speak for myself being on this on this podcast is almost years of, I don't really want to be seen as the person that talks about diversity and inclusion as a person of color within an organization, which I know sounds ludicrous. And, you know, I thought it was ludicrous for many, many years until I spoke to other people. And they said, yeah, similar until, until I got confident 10, 15, 20 years into my career, didn't want to talk about diversity and inclusion at all. Mm. Um, but I think we carry some of that. I think many of us carry some of that. And I think when you then get into the space of being rich advocates for inclusion and representation within the workplace, you're almost in a place where you're seeing others um, also feel like that. And so you've got to take people on the journey. And I think that's that's the thing that I've really uncovered over the last three to five years is that unless you take people on that journey with you, you're never truly going to get success from an inclusion perspective. And Chris, you'll have noticed this, and you and I had the conversation previously. I talk about it as inclusion way more than diversity. Mm. And, and, and there's a reason for that, because inclusion feels like it's for everyone, whereas I think, and it's not meant to be, but I think sometimes the word diversity feels exclusive, whereas actually inclusion is about everybody. And I think that's the key to unlocking this within organizations across the globe, which is how do you create something that everyone feels part of? Yeah, 100%. And when we talked previously, which I thought was really interesting, you were talking about your personal experiences and this idea of when diversity doesn't become, it's not diversity. So can you just expand on that for our listeners? Because I think it was a really interesting chat where you're talking about your sort of personal background, but also your academic background and the way in which you were thinking about things was quite interesting. So just reflect on that for our listeners, if that's all right. Yeah, and I think that was related to the story I was telling you where it probably hit me for the first time. And this is this is a long time ago. It's, it's probably even before I got into the workplace. I probably felt the most different I've ever felt in my life when I went for a uh, final stage interview at Queen's College, Oxford, to study experimental psychology. And I ended up doing occupational psychology and psychology as a degree in the end. But the clue in in that inference is I didn't get into, into Oxford and I didn't get into Queen's. But I remember going for the final assessment and had the most amazing experience over two, two days and met some just amazing people um but i i just hadn't had the rich experiences and background that many of my peers who had come to interview 
uh, Oxford had had. And I don't begrudge that. It was just, I was just in a very different place. I worked uh, during the week before college, doing my levels of clean fridges at Marks and Spencer's. And I worked at B&Q and Asda at the weekend. I was trying to save as much money as humanely possible before going to university. And it was one of those scenarios where if you'd asked me objectively, as somebody who's now done an assessment, and objectively as somebody who's recruited people into an organization, I have to say some of those individuals were incredibly impressive with amazing backgrounds. And at the time, all I could really talk about in terms of additional things were perhaps a little bit of sport, but predominantly working uh, in the mornings, cleaning fridges, uh, working on the working on the shop floor at B&Q, working in the garden centre at B&Q, and being on the tills at Asda. And that in itself, for me, started to open up this whole kind of thought process. Actually, think that there must be so many people who, if they had the right opportunities and the right experiences, could also thrive and fulfil potential that perhaps they're just not given the opportunities to do so. And that's where my thinking really comes in in this space. Is It was a, it was a very simple question that I posed on a panel many, many years ago, which was, even to, and this was a question to myself is where did all of those smart kids go because i went to school i wasn't the smartest kid in my um class but there were some amazingly talented individuals out there and i don't know where they went i don't yeah. know i don't know whether they had they had the opportunities that they should have had i don't know whether they were successful as they had the potential to be and it really hit me to say where did all those smart kids go I think so when I think about that whole inclusion piece and the diversity piece, it's about untapped potential. And you asked me to put a talent lens on this. Think about all of the untapped potential that exists within the labour market in the UK, but actually the labour market across the globe. And that's where I think is our biggest opportunity as HR practitioners, as talent practitioners, as diversity practitioners, as organisations of the world. How can we untap? this potential that clearly isn't being tapped right now. Yeah, and that's the best way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's about how do we untap this talent pools rather than how do we kind of tick a box because from a ES, maybe from a ESG perspective or from a, a governance perspective, it looks good. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this mm. idea. And we've talked about this on other pods as well, this mm. idea of diversity, DNI strategies being all around, uh, you know, are they essentially just tick box exercises? So obviously just reflect on that for me, um, your sort of view when organisations get it wrong, I guess, and treat it as yeah. a tick box exercise. It's tricky though, isn't it? Because I've been a a staunch critic of targets back in yeah. the day because I felt that wasn't necessarily the way to address the issues that exist and yeah almost feels affirmative action which I've, been, I've never quite quite I've been a fan of really and yet without targets and without something organizations are struggling to measure how effective they are at some of these things and so I feel in, in many cases, and I've moved towards it, I, I feel like I understand why organisations feel they need things like targets. But but you're right, in that scenario, what then does tend to happen is it can feel almost a tick box exercise or it can feel like there is an element of tokenism that an organisation is portraying. And that in itself becomes incredibly evident when individuals 
do not necessarily feel, and I know this is becoming a little bit more emotional in, in context, but then when, when individuals don't necessarily feel that the words an organization has espoused as a philosophy or a aspiration is then is then the ex- employee experience that they feel. And I think that's where the problems lie. And, and I've certainly seen it within organizations I've worked for where there's almost been a slight rebellion against the organization because uh, the portrayal is that we really care about something like representation and inclusion, and yet many people do not necessarily feel included in that space. And by the way, that often can be the minority, but it can often be the majority as well because of the way an organisation may purpose its DEI philosophy. And so there's a real danger in that because on, on one hand, there is not a criticism from me to say an organisation shouldn't talk about how aspirational they are, but um, conversely, if the employee experience of those individuals doesn't necessarily relate to the narrative, it can cause a huge issue for, for people within the organisation. And and then it becomes, or then it starts to feel like tokenism, or it then starts to feel like rhetoric that isn't necessarily true. So I think with everything, like a brand, I think it's a brand, this is like a branding exercise for me. And this is where I think the world of HR is moving so so much closer to the world of communications and marketing and branding, Mm -hmm. which is if this is the brand that an organization espouses to be or aspires to be, if the customer or the employee doesn't necessarily feel that in their day-to-day employee experience, I think it becomes a real challenge for an organization going forward. And I think the demands placed on an organization by their employees nowadays, comparative to 5, 10, 15 years ago, is completely different. Yeah. Can I just uh, explore that a little bit mm. with you, this idea? Because it's interesting you're saying that because about the, the brand and, you know, it's, it's becoming HR is becoming a comms almost role, a marketing type role, because we've just run a campaign um, at the time of recording. The campaign is ongoing right now. It's called the Employee Experience Revolution. Mm. One of the things that we're actually doing is talking to uh, marketing people. And, and say what can HR learn? I know we're going slightly off topic on the on the yeah, D and I piece, but I'd still like to pick your brains on that because I think there's something in there. What are your thoughts so that what can HR people learn from from marketing people in the way in which they deliver what they need to the business internally through employee experience? Yeah, I think the skills of the two functions are actually converging. To be perfectly honest, um, and I think. We all learn from the mistakes that we make. And certainly for me, one of the things that when I first took the role uh, in talent at Bloomberg, what I learned very, very quickly is HR people are very good at designing a solution for the business. Um, And we can sit there and be incredibly proud of what we design and actually have a bit of a geek off and say, look, this is probably one of the best things I think we've done over the last 12 months. But we're a little bit horrible at selling that proposition to its employees. And therefore... I think what I'm saying there is if if our product is as good as we often believe it is, we also notice that actually we don't we, we love the product, but yet our employees don't love the product as much as we do. So what's the missing ingredient there? I think it's the way we brand it. I think it's the way we communicate it. And I think it's the way we sell that proposition to our people, our employees, our leaders, our organization that is lacking. And I think if, if we go back to that comment that I made earlier about the convergence of human capital and comms and marketing, there's, there's a very powerful dynamic that is created by putting those skills together 
And, and just imagine that out of the five things that we do as, a, as an HR function per annum, if we can get our employees and our leaders and our organization to love what we do as much as what we, how much we love our products, all of a sudden, I think you'll get a very different narrative coming out of our employees, which is to say, we have a phenomenal people experience. We have a fabulous employee experience. We have some amazing things that our organization does for us. Whereas at the moment, sometimes I think that's the that's the gap that exists between what we actually do, what we actually create, what we actually try and create for the employee versus the reality that our employees feel um, that the HR function does for them. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's about telling the. St- it's getting better at telling the story, isn't it? Because when you can tell a story and you can do it passionately enough um, and yeah. get people to understand, this is the reason why we're doing that. And that and that goes back to the whole kind of DEI stuff as well. It's about this isn't about the tick box exercise. The reason we are doing this is because it will add value to our business. It will enable us to tap into into talent pools. Um, I want to get some thoughts from you because one of the things that we talked about was uh, when you and I chatted before, moving us back onto the DEI side, is you talked about diversity in roles and whether or not business are doing enough to transform. And you had a really interesting kind of thought process around hiring people with the same sort of background. Can you just uh, give me a little bit, of, give our listeners a little bit of a flavour yeah. on that? Yeah, and this, I think this was the uh, this was the discussion and debate we also had around what does it truly mean to get diversity within an organisation? And I think yeah. my, my point was that in many cases where the targets that we set as an as an example will will be quite quite black or white if that makes sense and which is gender targets ethnicity targets uh, to name a couple as as an example and yet if we truly were to scratch beneath the surface around let's say if an organization has a 20% target to have different ethnicities as part of its senior leadership team are they truly getting the most diverse representation of talent or does the ecosystem that those individuals come from almost be retained to be the same as existing leaders? And I think I think that's the piece that I started to kind of get really interested in with, within the concept of DNI, that which was if you start to apply almost intersectional data, what would it truly reveal about your work? Would it mean that it's more diverse or would it mean it's less diverse? And I think I think my hypothesis here is it would be less diverse because just because we may have, we may have 10% of our senior workforce uh, people of different ethnicities, often when you look at the background of those individuals, they may have had a, a private education. They may have gone to the very, very, very best universities in the world, whether that's Ivy League, whether that's Oxford. And then all of a sudden, you start to almost create a narrative that actually, is it is it actually the demographic that you're measuring that helps people get to certain positions? Or is it the ecosystem that they've grown up in or the ecosystem that they're part of that has led to their success? And so, I think this is where we then started going off on the uh, socio-economic piece, which is, yeah. is certainly one that I'm incredibly passionate about. And you still get very few people that break the ecosystem. And this is this is a bit of a UK-centric point, I appreciate. But you still very much see people struggle to break the circle that they've come out of from an eco- socio-economic diversity perspective. And I think... Until we can truly break some of these things, do we truly get 
an inclusive workforce, representational workforce in any organisation? Or are we really seeing people who are part of the same ecosystem succeed time and time again? Yeah. And it, that's your point about inclusivity, isn't it? It's all right. Mm. So we've got balance of gender and ethnicity and different types of people, but actually they're all from the same. They all come from the same university. They're all played cricket together, whatever it is. You know what I mean? So it's uh, that's what I thought was really, really interesting. And I think also I'd love to get your thoughts on this. If you're just going to effectively get people with the same socioeconomic background i don't feel like as an as an organization you're really going to drive as much creativity because everyone's thinking in the same way and i think creativity is another sort of benefit that comes out of having truly diverse workforce but of course it, the, conversely the challenge is of course when people are incredibly different uh, it's also it's also a little bit harder to, to manage that workforce and, and i think everyone has seen the research to say truly diverse organizations are incredibly successful but truly diverse organizations are probably also slightly harder to manage because there is so much difference and so it takes a real leadership skill to manage different people and again this is where i'm, I'm kind of talking about very different people rather than people coming from the same ecosystem albeit that they're male female and, and different ethnicities so I think the challenge for organisations is intellectually people can understand why getting truly diverse people from different backgrounds and, and different thought processes, neuro, different neuroscience um, thought processes around neurodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. But it becomes incredibly challenging and incredibly hard to manage that type of organisation, whereas having people that are quite similar often makes it quite easy and an easy place to work and easier to build relationships and easier to find common ground. And that's the challenge. And, and let's be honest, we all prefer to make life easy for ourselves. And I think, and by the way, I'm not saying that's a reason not to do it, but there is no doubt that having significant difference within organisation, within teams is not a challenge to manage. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, that that I was thinking that exact same thing, just as you were saying it, and making life easy for yourselves certainly. So I want to ask a question around, um, kind of. I want to sort of forward look now because we talked previously around, you know, is it in their interest to do what governments in the UK have failed to do in the last twenty years? I want to sort of get your thoughts as to where the lay of the land is at the moment, and then also if there's any changes that you are seeing, and if we, you and I are having this conversation in five years' time, what would you say your utopia is of life has changed from a way in which people address uh, finding different types of talent, from a way in which organisations are approaching like the data, the metric side of it, and also from a, a way in which organisations are embracing, almost embracing, I don't, I was going to use the word chaos, it's not chaos, but embracing this idea of let's not all get everybody that, thinks the same and acts the same mm. where are we at in five years time five years is a or ten years i, I don't I, ten years okay let's go let's go with ten years i think almost the utopia is that people start thinking about the concepts of inclusion belonging and respect and empathy as the words that that they use now to talk about what today we we describe as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because I think those words that are used intentionally are words that are truly inclusive and for all. Mm. I think there is, sadly, clearly a slight backlash against 
words such as diversity because I think people feel it's not for them. So I think in terms of a concept, I think we will start talking about inclusion, belonging, employee experience, um, empathy, respect, those types of things, our ambition and our aspiration. If we get those things right, representation will naturally follow. Mm. What I probably feel is that we need a way to measure success that's slightly more data-driven and less pickable. And perhaps that, for me, is looking at data in a much more complex way than we do today. And it's, it's, not, it's not as black and white. So much more intersectional data should start to reveal whether we're truly getting representation within our organizations. So I think, I think those are the things that I would hope we, we get to, and that everybody within an organization feels it's their accountability and responsibility to create that type of environment for their colleagues. Because actually, what we're really, what we're really trying to do even today is create an employee experience that everyone wants to be part of. I mean, that's the utopia it, within an organization that everyone loves working for your organization because I've got great colleagues who respect me, they have great empathy for me, and they care about me outside of what I do for them in, in the workplace. I think everyone can get behind that. Um, and yet, I think we've created almost this divisiveness within uh, within the workplace, outside of the workplace, uh, within the media, et cetera, et cetera, right now. And I think that's got to change in order for us to truly progress. Um, and I think, quite frankly, governments aren't going to do that. I think the only, the only way we can succeed is if organisations create that type of employee experience that starts to attract and retain talent. And other organisations will look and go, we need to do what they're doing because they're getting the best people, they're getting the top talent of the world. And I think that creates a movement rather than something which creates almost a divisive feel, which is really sad, really, that I even say that. And when even when, as I reflect on the language I'm using, but there is no doubt in the reality that many people right now do not feel diversity is for them. Yeah. No, and I think you said right at the beginning, which is one of the key things, if I was to say, you know, the big thing, my takeaway from today is focusing on the inclusion part of it rather than anything else, because that's going to get the biggest sort of uptick. That's going to deliver the biggest uh, value add back to businesses. Jig. We are almost out of time. It's been amazing. As usual, it completely whirled by the, uh, the 30 minutes that we have. Uh, I am going to make sure that I don't leave it two years before we get you on again. <laughs> there's lots of different things that we can pick through. But do you just want to tell our listeners where they can find you in terms of socials and stuff like that? Yeah, um, the usuals. I think Shigramji1980 uh, is my Twitter handle. Uh, oh, sorry, X handle. X handle, oh, yeah. Ultimate failure. And then Jig Ramsey on LinkedIn as well. Lovely. Uh, top stuff. Of course, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have enjoyed recording it with uh, the lovely Jig today. And you can get all of our back catalogue of the different podcasts that we've got. If you're a regular listener, then you will already know this. But if this is the first time that you're listening to it, you can visit lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can see all of our different uh, podcasts. We've covered a wide range of different topics over the three and a half, just over three and a half years that we've been doing the podcast now, which is really, really great. But Jig, once again, uh, thank you very much for joining me sir thanks chris uh, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope to see or hear from you next time on the hr on the offensive podcast bye-bye